This is Fire Rescue One Side Alpha Podcast, putting fire service leaders in front of hot topics facing firefighters today. Now here's the executive editor of FireRescueOne.com and FireChief.com, Chief Mark Bashore. Today we're talking about one of the most prevalent but least popular subjects in the fire service, and that's disciplinary issues. By the way, this is part of our continuing special coverage series of discipline in the fire service. Discipline always tends to be a sticky issue. To that end, we're talking today with retired Deputy Assistant Chief and Fire Service legal expert and attorney, Kurt Verone. If you didn't know it, fire service discipline issues is one of Kurt's favorite topics. Fire service discipline, you know, is one of those issues in the fire service that doesn't sound so sexy, but when you think about it, it can really get a department, its chiefs, its officers in a lot of trouble. And this topic fits in perfectly with the special coverage series I mentioned in the beginning. We'll include the link to the full series in the show now. Fortunately, we've got the right person to help us navigate those choppy waters. Kurt Brown has over 40 years of fire service experience and 30 as a practicing attorney licensed in both Rhode Island and Maine. His fire service background includes 29 years as a career firefighter in Providence, Rhode Island, where he retired from there as a deputy assistant chief, uh, as well as having uh, volunteer and paid on call experience. Kurt currently serves as deputy fire chief with the Exeter, Rhode Island Fire Department. Kurt is also a consultant with us here at Lexapol. Kurt, welcome to the Side Alpha podcast. Oh, thank you, Chief. Um, uh, I'm really uh, excited to be talking about this topic. I, I think it's one that doesn't get enough um, discussion and there's a lot of misunderstanding about, so I'm happy to be here. Yeah, nobody likes to talk about discipline, right? They uh, they like to well, talk nobody about- Nobody likes discipline. <laughs> yeah. Nobody yeah. likes discipline, let's face it. Yeah, yeah, and we're gonna talk about a lot of specifics and uh, we'll get into policy, we'll get into um, a, a lot of different things and things you've written. So. Uh, a great opportunity to uh, try and, and not make this so hard that that, that people feel like, uh, oh my God, here we are with another discipline thing. That's not where we're, we're going to try and keep this light and try and keep it where people can follow and um, hopefully help get themselves out of hot water, uh, not get themselves in hot water in the first place would be the key. But uh, you wrote an article for us at lexpole.com and firerescue1.com where you said, discipline is not about punishment, it's about behavior. And I suspect right. anecdotally everyone gets that, but can you expand on it for our listeners? Oh boy. Well, I, I think that's a central theme um, in my approach to discipline. And uh, when my classes, I kind of start out by asking, I, I call it my favorite question. And, you know, what's the purpose of discipline? And it, it's one of those questions that if you're applying for a chief's job or you're applying for a promotion and you go before, a panel, an interview panel, and you get asked that question, we all know the textbook answer. And, you know, it's to change behavior, to get the behavior to conform to what the organization needs. We, we know we have that down pat. The problem is that when it comes to specific questions during the course of somebody being accused of misconduct, we forget it. It, it just goes out the window. And one of the, I use a lot of metaphors when I, when I speak on this and, and one of the metaphors and the folks who've been through the classes, you know, you know, what's coming. It's one of my favorite metaphors, 
but it's the dog chasing the rabbit. And whether it's the, the chief, whether it's the investigator who very often would be a captain or a battalion chief or deputy chief that's actually you know, doing the disciplinary investigation, but they get into the mindset of being like the dog chasing the rabbit where it's not about determining what the person did or didn't do. We, we, we sort of forget about the ultimate purpose of discipline. It becomes, I think the rabbit did something wrong and I've got to catch the rabbit. And then we decide that we've got to prove that the rabbit did something wrong. And then we look at neutral appearing facts as proof that they did it. And in reality, the, the facts may be neutral. The facts may not suggest that the person actually did something wrong. Um, so we, we end up with this sort of distorted perspective of it. And meanwhile, the rest of the organization is watching the investigation unfold. And they're, they're saying, boy, that they're, they're not really investigating this in a fair manner. And you have company officers saying, well, I'll be damned if I'll let my subordinates be subjected to something like that. I'm not going to report it. They're not treating the, the person fairly. Sure. So it, it's, it's, it's a fascinating dynamic. And, you know, it's probably beyond, you know, 30 or 45 minutes worth of discussion to fully develop it. But that's one of the challenges. And, and I think if um, I use that question, what is the purpose of discipline as almost like a reset button for myself when I have to do discipline, when I have to make a decision, when I'm in the middle of an investigation, I have to make, you know, the, the different decisions that we have to make. It's almost like a reset button, like when your computer isn't working right or your, your iPhone or your, your, you know, your, your smartphone is not working. You reset it and it sort of refocuses the attention back to what's really important, which is we don't have to catch the rabbit. You know, we've got to get the rabbit to do what we need the rabbit to do. We don't have to catch the rabbit. It's not about proving the case. It's about getting the behavior to change. And sometimes we can do that in ways that don't involve punishment. Yeah. So maybe we don't, like you said, we don't need to catch a rabbit. Maybe we just need to get it to stop running. Yeah. Just get out of, get out of my garden. Start eat, stop eating my yeah. carrots. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Good stuff. So yeah, you know, I know you've seen tons and tons of this um, and I'm, I'm sure you have a list. So I'm going to ask you for some of the top disciplinary issues that uh, you can share that uh, from your experience tend to, to trip or, you know, jam up the officers from a legal perspective. Well, um, back in 2010, I started a database on um, legal issues and, and, various legal proceedings that fire departments get involved in. And um, I'm, I'm just getting ready to break 11,000 cases in that database. And I include disciplinary infractions in there. So I actually have some very good data on that. And uh, right now, sexual misconduct is the number one reason for firefighters getting disciplined um, wow. in the fire service. Now, that may be skewed, and I'm, I'm sort of a purist when it comes to research. So, but um, it may be skewed because I tend to find out about things that are in the newspaper that end up in court. Um, so there's got to be some sort of way that I become aware of it um, in yeah. a formal way, not just somebody informing me, but it's, it's got to be formal. So when you think about it, 
if a firefighter is insubordinate um, to her captain, I'm probably not going to find out about that. The person gets 24 hours off or whatever it may be. I'm not going to find out about it. So it's not going to make its way into the database. Sure. Sexual misconduct allegations are certainly um, the type that are going to make the newspaper and I'm going to become aware of it. So yeah. but yeah. in my data, number one is sexual misconduct. Mm-hmm. Um, n- number two is um, alcohol on yeah. drinking. Okay. Yeah, and I guess and that's not we, a surprise. I, I, I see a lot of that come across the, the wire, if you will. It does. And I think, Chief, you and I are the same generation. And, uh, you know, I think things are getting better in that regard, um, but it still is a problem. It, yeah. it continues to be a problem. Okay. Uh, and then we move into social media. And, and I, I, you know, I don't have a good way of sort of parsing out cases from 2021 and 2020 compared to say 1995 or 2000. There's, there's really not a good way for me to do that. But anecdotally, I can say, I, I think um, social media is, is one of the biggest ways that firefighters are getting themselves in trouble today. Yeah. And we could do a podcast in and of itself on social media uh, disciplinary issues. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah, and um, I I agree with you, and I certainly 100% understand that you know you can only capture what's given to you, or what you're what you're able to find. So th- that the database with over 11,000 um, cases is is based on what's in the news, basically, or what somebody sends you, right? Right. It's in the news. I I subscribe to a service called Lexus. Um, which is, it's a lawyer's database of cases. So I I get cases from Lexus. They send me alerts. Okay. So I, my, my alerts are set for any time the word fire department, firefighter, or uh, fire rescue are used in a case, whether it's a case being filed or a case being decided, I get an email. So, um, which, you know, I get 200 emails a day just from Lexus. But, yeah. uh, but I go through them and I, I do my best to um, add cases that I haven't already identified as um, as being out there. So you, you get 200 hits a day just on the fire related keywords? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Wow. Yeah, yeah that tells you we're in the news uh, or, or we're in the legal system more than uh, I think most people realize. So uh, all the more reason we, that we are. Yeah. Yeah, we are. Funny. Funny thing is, um, I've talked to a number of insurance um professionals, risk management professionals who are familiar with municipal liability. And they say for a comparably sized fire department and police department, the fire department gets, well, I'm sorry, the police department gets sued about 100 times for every time the fire department gets sued. So kind of just to put that in perspective, I mean, you know, we think it's bad. We're not bad compared to um, our sister agency. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and you know that that goes to what uh, our traditions and our history, and you know we we always tend to teach the the newer folks that uh, you know the Grandma Jones loves us, the fire service, and is typically wanting us to show up. It's the law enforcement that they typically don't want to show up, and uh, it's it's a strange dynamic, and that lends itself to that whole complaint process. They show up with force. To, in, to enforce, and uh, we show up in force to take care of your problem. That's the 
it's it's all kind of the same thing, but that's the perception. And uh, I guess no, I, that- I agree. I, I absolutely. And most lawsuits in police departments are brought by Mrs. Smith, uh, yeah. the unhappy customer. Right. Um, most of our lawsuits are brought by our own brothers and sisters. They're, they're coming from inside. Roughly 70 percent of our lit- litigation is coming from within our ranks. Wow. Uh, so it's almost the opposite of law enforcement. Yeah. That's uh, that's really interesting. Seventy percent coming from within the ranks, yeah. and those three, Absolutely. those those top three that you listed there, um, that holds to that internal mix as well. Yeah, I have them broken down by um, administrative, which would be discipline, and you know you have you have somebody's discipline, then they grieve it either through the collective bargaining agreement or they grieve it through civil service. So it doesn't really get into court, but those are the administrative cases. Um, Then we have uh, civil cases, uh, which involve someone suing a civil suit. And then we have criminal cases. And while we do see some criminal activity, um, we don't see an excess. In my opinion, we don't have an excess of criminal activity. You know, it happens and we deal with it, but the um the, the the lion's share probably at least 55 percent of the cases in my database would be some sort of disciplinary or civil service or union grievance type of proceeding mm. and do you see a um, either d- differences or um, i'm not sure i know the right way to ask the question but if we're looking at paid and volunteer services um, do you see a lot of volunteer-related issues coming through those court systems that are, um, you know, that are making that database, or is this mostly paid, uh, you know, career departments? You know, um, you, you've got to really look at the specifics. For example, I'll give you an example of arson. Um, we have a we have an excess of arson in the volunteer service, very 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 clearly. Sure. Um, and and it's. Um, something that all leaders in the volunteer service need to pay attention to. Yeah. Very sad Um, reality. Yeah. And and on, on um, the career side, it's not that we don't see arson, but first of all, we don't see it nearly in the quantity that we see on the volunteer side and the motives are totally different Uh, on the volunteer side. We've got people who are um, lighting fires as part of trying to get experience and, and, you know, be part of the team uh, and maybe make some extra money if they're paid on call uh, yeah. or trying to fulfill some sort of a, a hero, um, you know, persona that they want to sure. uh, send out to, to people. Uh, on the on the career side, what we see is um, firefighters being, you know, stuck with a, um, uh, a non-productive rental property and looking for an excuse to get out from under it, or maybe they got a lemon of a car and for some reason they can't get rid of it. And they, they opt to take what they think is going to be an easy, um, insurance claim. Um, another, another difference would be on the volunteer side. We often see often, you know, anywhere from a third to a half of the cases involve multiple people, uh, involved in some sort of, uh, you know, conspiracy to burn. Um, whereas on the career side, very rarely is there anyone other than the one firefighter involved in setting the fire. So this, this differences uh, yeah. that we see. Yeah. Yeah. And, this, and the sad thing is that every one of the instances that you just talked about, I've had 
experience with staff uh, that either worked for me, with me, uh, or was a supervisor of me at the time that found themselves embroiled in those kind of cases. So I can speak from personal experience that that's uh, accurate data. Um, so let's talk about progressive discipline. Can you can you speak briefly to uh, you know a definition for our listeners of uh, uh, progressive discipline and share how legally uh, they at least should be aware of that and should be thinking in the terms of progressive discipline? Well, it, it kind of goes back to my what I call my favorite question, which is what, what is the purpose of discipline? Um, and it's to change behavior. It's to change the behavior of the firefighter who is misbehaving, but also send a message to everyone else in the organization that the organization can't tolerate this kind of behavior. Yeah. So with that in mind, um, and, and one of the, I, I, let me give you a, a little bit of a long winded explanation that I use in my class to really kind of set the stage here. Um, a fire department makes an investment in an employee. And often we don't think about the investment that we make in the employee. Um, but uh, I'll give you an example. And from my experience in Providence, we would pay, basically pay firefighters overtime to go to job fairs, to go into high schools, uh, to do the recruiting. Um, sometimes our HR people would, would go out and do that as well. But there was a cost associated with recruiting. Then we'd have to advertise. Then we'd, we'd have to rent the civic center. Um, which is a, a major undertaking to run a facility like that. And then we'd have to administer a written examination, which has to be uh, validated. So it's, it's not a cheap, um, uh, certainly, uh, expense when it comes to making sure that you have a validated um, examination. Sure. So then we take some of those people, we put them through a physical abilities uh, process, which again has to be validated and there's a cost associated with that. Then we, uh, some places will send them on for an interview, you know, but at, at a minimum, they're gonna, the, the selected candidate's gotta go for a medical exam. They've gotta go for a psychological exam. They've gotta go do a police background exam, all of which is costing money. Mm -hmm. And then we get them into the academy. And I, I know in Providence, we have, people that are assigned to the academy, but we have to supplement them when we have an academy go through because we want actual practitioners, folks who are, you know, when, when it comes to, for example, ladder company operations that are proficient and that's what they do. They get up on the roof, they get the roof open. Then we want engine company officers uh, and engineers coming in. So as a result, we will send a cadre of folks, take them offline and get them over to the academy uh, to be the instructors for the class. Um, that in turn, require, we've got to pay their salary, but in turn, we've got to backfill their spots on the engines and ladders. Sure. Okay? So when you add up all of that expense, you know, you're looking at a couple hundred thousand dollars um, per person. When you, when you really look at all the expense, you're looking at a couple hundred thousand dollars per person that you put through the academy. Now, if one of us bought a brand new pumper, Okay, we, we bought one recently. It was $465,000. If That's you cheap. back a four, I'm sorry. Yeah, I know. Well, that was, it was probably about four years ago. Okay. okay. But, right. um, but, but $465,000, we back that truck in the firehouse. Okay. And on the second day we have it in the firehouse, it doesn't start. 
and we get rid of it. We say, well, it's obviously a lemon. We're going to get rid of it. I mean, that, that's absurd. I mean, and I think we all, anybody listening here, that would be absurd. Right. No responsible person would take the investment that the taxpayers just made in that pumper and allow you to just junk it because it didn't start once. We don't apply the same principle when it comes to our people that we just invested the same amount of money in. Yeah. And why is that? Why, why are we so quick to assume some people are a lemon? Um, so getting back to your question on progressive discipline, okay, it aligns with the philosophy here that the purpose of discipline is to change behavior. And so what we want to do is we, we always want to discipline in the least amount that we have to do that's going to correct the behavior. Some things, maybe there was a misunderstanding about the rules um, and sitting down with the person and explaining it is going to be adequate to get the behavior to change. Sometimes maybe we need a little bit more than that. Okay. Maybe a brief suspension. Okay. Sometimes maybe a little bit more may be appropriate. Okay. So the, the idea behind progressive discipline is that we, we want to apply the minimum necessary to get the behavior to change. It's not about getting rid of a lemon. It's about trying to get the behavior to conform to what the organization needs. And progressive discipline means we're going to apply the least amount that we need to, and then we'll see what happens. If it, if it works, beautiful. If it doesn't, then we may have to ramp it up a little bit more. Um, and then ultimately, at some point, we may say, just like, just like with a pumper, at some point, we may have to say, we've got a lemon. Yeah. Um, well, just we may have to. And I, I, I don't like it when it gets to that point. And um, I'm, as an attorney, I'm suspicious sometimes when we get to that point prematurely with people, because I wonder if maybe we haven't given that person a fair opportunity. Um, but assuming that that person has had a fair opportunity and fully understands what the rules are and that their behavior was not in conformance with it, it's out of our hands at that point. Yeah. Yeah. And, and a lot of, um, I know a lot of organizations, mine, uh, we're, we're in the process of our negotiating our first, um, IAF F contract. And, uh, from my experiences in Maryland, I've brought some of the progressive discipline, um, concepts that we successfully negotiated there, uh, to insert here. And um, a lot of places use a matrix. And, you know, I know you've written um, that that article as well. And um, we can probably talk about that another time. But certainly that matrix helps you uh, align the uh, um, progressive discipline with the offense and the number of offenses. And, um, you know, so I don't know if you want to speak to that at the moment or not, but that type of thing is important for people to have uh, in, in their toolbox. Yeah, I mean, it is important that we are consistent in our discipline. And, yeah. you know, when you work for government, government has to respect people's constitutional rights. And it's, it's even more than that, because the, the, the fire service is a family um, on, on a certain level, and we spend holidays together on and off duty, but we spend holidays, we spend nights and weekends and birthdays yeah. and, and all of the different things. And when the fire department is perceived 
as not being fair in its discipline, then it undercuts the credibility of the department in a lot of other ways as well. So we have to have a we have to have a fair system. We have to have credibility in the system, and and it has to be respected and trusted by the membership. It doesn't have to be loved and revered, but it has to there has to be a level of trust in in the system. Um, so having the disciplinary matrix or some other way of having consistent and fair punishment is an important part. And I'm not necessarily a big fan of disciplinary matrixes. I I know some departments need them. Um, It can tie your hands sometimes. So uh, on the other hand, it, it does help with consistency. So I think that departments that have a disciplinary matrix you, you, you have it because you probably need it. Um, maybe there were some allegations in the past about people not being treated fairly, uh, whether it's along um, protected class lines or whether it's, you know, your, your grandfather didn't like my grandfather and I don't like you. And yeah. you know, this is, here's your punishment, that kind of thing. But um, I, I think that if you don't need a disciplinary matrix, you have much more flexibility um, by using what we refer to as an administrative insight. And yeah. it's it's another way, but even if you use the administrative insight consistency, you, you need to be consistent from employee to employee in terms of the punishment that, that you administer, or you've got to be able to explain why you deviated. Yeah, and, and you know, I'll tell you from my experience the why it worked for us in, in Prince George's County and uh, why in a lot of places where I've seen it employed, it works is because of the lack of tenure at the chief's position. And if you look at metro sized departments over um, the course of my time, the average time for a chief in a metro sized department is two to three years. Now, certainly you're going to find the 10 and the 15 year person, but that two to three years uh, and a consistent turnover is what creates exactly what you just said you you have to be uh, is it, it creates the lack of consistency and the matrix um, holds it all together you know from what I've seen so I think um, yeah. it, it's good good discussion on both ends and um, I want to move on and, and talk about um, uh, a little bit more in a different piece of, of discipline and that's who uh, you know I've worked in Various departments in three states, and I can tell you that the methods of administration for uh, for HR and discipline are all over the place. Um, when we're talking fire service discipline, can you help our listeners with who should be offering up the discipline? Is it HR? Is it a chief that's on duty? Is it your lieutenant? Is it a you know a, a company officer? Or you know who who should be doling out the discipline? Uh, chief, do you have about 48 hours? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, let me, let me just ask you this. Okay. And, um, if you have, I, I came from a, a fire department, uh, with 15 engines, eight ladders, five EMS units, three on duty chiefs. Okay. Yeah. Um, a department that size. Okay. Uh, how likely is it that you think that the captain, each of those companies have a captain and when the captain isn't working, they have lieutenants on the other shifts. Um, how likely is it that we can get all 15 of the engines to keep the same equipment in the same apart, uh, same compartments? 
Yeah. You wouldn't how think many, that could be that hard. How many hard. days do you have? <laughs> you, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Uh, you know, how about the la- how about the ladder companies that they're going to, you know, arrange their equipment so that when uh, a, a firefighter in ladder seven is going right. to uh, work in ladder five, they know where everything is and, and every, and the saws start the same and everything's the same. Okay. So that's, that's our bread and butter. That's fighting fires. How are we possibly going to have consistent discipline if we leave discipline up to every officer in the department? Because if you have a hundred officers, you're going to have a hundred different ways of doing it. Yep. Um, and some are going to be sticklers and some are going to be laid back and they'll, they're going to ignore what happened. So, um, I think that for discipline to be effective, um, the organization has to find a way to manage that problem. And I'm, trust me, I am big and I am understanding on empowering junior officers. Mm -hmm. But it can't, we cannot empower junior officers to administer discipline. I think that that is um, a recipe for disaster um, that, we expect the officers to report the misconduct. The re- misconduct goes to a chief officer in the organization who's pre-designated and has a responsibility for discipline. And my terminology, I use the term professional standards, but we need a chief who's either a chief of professional standards or a chief whose responsibility includes professional standards. The complaint gets routed to that chief that chief then makes a decision, looks at all of what we know, and makes a decision whether there's going to be an investigation, assigns the investigator to do the investigation, and then dictates whether it's going to be a formal investigation or an informal investigation. And that way we standardize the process. Once the investigation is complete, the investigation report goes back to the chief of professional standards who then presents it to the fire chief. And at that point, there's a decision made on punishment. Now I know in a, in a big department like FDNY or Chicago or Houston, the chief of department isn't going to get involved in every single discipline. So there'd be, whether it's a four bugle or a three bugle chief that would handle those types of decisions, but we cannot have disciplinary decision-making um, beyond reporting uh, misconduct and what I refer to as a complaint, beyond reporting that someone did something wrong, we we should not allow discipline to be administered um, sort of willy-nilly by other officers in the organization. Yeah. Yeah. Where's the Firefighter Bill of Rights come in with this whole discussion at this point? It's a great point. Yeah, it's a great point. Not every state has one. I know you're down in Florida now, and they, they do. They have a, a Bill of Rights in California. And I'll tell you, my favorite Bill of Rights is New Mexico. I think New Mexico is sort of leading the country. And you know, if anybody's really you know interested in, in getting a Bill of Rights, a firefighter Bill of Rights enacted, I think New Mexico is, is, is a really good one. But um, the Bill of Rights law is really protection for the accused firefighter. And in most states, the states that I've looked at, they, it, it doesn't offer any protection to anyone other than an accused firefighter. And I think that's unfortunate because I think those, um, some of those rights really need to be extended to any firefighter, whether they're a witness or whether they're an accused. Mm. But 
bottom line is the Bill of Rights offer protection to the firefighters in terms of notice prior to them being um, interviewed. Possibly in some states, it gives them a right to have either a union rep or an attorney with them, or at least someone else from the organization with them. Um, the uh, interview cannot be conducted in a uh, <clears throat> hostile confrontational interrogation type of uh, um, uh, mindset. Uh, and, and so on. This, there's usually quite a few um, real nuanced types of protections that are in those laws. Sure. Sure. Okay. So, um, so we've established that uh, we should be directing uh, departments to manage discipline through a designated chief officer. And you, you said something like uh, professional standards. So that, that's the term I use. Yeah. Sure. Sure. And, you know, and we, um, we had department disciplinary coordinator who was in an office of professional standards and, you know, you can nuance it, like you said, however, it works for the agency, but uh, good, good stuff that it should be in that direction. So the flow of information and notification, um, you know, thinking about confidentiality and, you know, if you, if you liken it to HIPAA and EMS, even though I, I recognize we're not talking exactly the same thing, should that be a fluid discussion up and down the chain, you know, uh, documentation and, and privacy? What are the expectations there and how do we communicate appropriately? Well, one of the challenges we have is that um, we often prejudge because, you know, we're not good at at, at disciplining. You know, we, we, we just we're, we're not in a good frame of mind as firefighters to discipline because it goes against our culture protecting each other. So we, we tend not to put a lot of thought into it and we yeah. tend to immediately not want to deal with it. So we don't have a good approach to it. And I, I'll give you an example. One of my sons is a firefighter. One of my sons is a police officer. And um, the son that's a police officer immediately knew that he was going to have to do investigations. He knew when he took the exam to become a police officer and right on through, he went to college for it and everything. He knew he was going to have to, my son, that's a firefighter could care less about investigations. So number one, we don't have sort of an institutional model for doing a good investigation, but the, we don't want to be prejudging the outcome of anything until the investigation is complete. So there really isn't much of a role for anyone other than the investigator, the chief of professional standards and the assigned investigator um, to be talking about what happened until we know what happened. So, and, and I think that's where, you know, there, there may be some misunderstanding about the involvement of HR. And there, there certainly are certain types of allegations that um, some municipalities do not want investigated by firefighters. They, they only want HR investigating certain types of things. So typically sexual harassment, race discrimination, racial harassment, um, hostile work environment in many jurisdictions. Uh, they want those sort of funneled to HR and not to the, the normal fire department investigators. And mm -hmm. I think that's unfortunate, but the bottom line is we should have a set process um, and we follow the process, whether we like you or we don't like you, uh, whether you're on the chief's A team or the chief's F team, it doesn't matter. Um, we're going to handle the investigation the same way. We're going to treat you like a valued member of the organization throughout the investigation. Uh, and then whatever happens is going to depend on what the investigation uncovers. Yeah. So how do we make sure 
briefly, how do we, we make sure that the um, rank and file knows we're actually doing something? You know what I'm saying? I mean, ha without violating all that privacy, how do we make sure they know that we've actually done something about the problem? Well, that's a, there's a couple of different points. Number one, how do they know we're investigating? Well, number one, I really don't care if they know as an investigator. I really don't care if they know or don't know. That's not my problem. My problem is to do the investigation. From the chief's perspective, his problem is to figure out what happened, which we can't do until the investigation is complete. So we try to provide confidentiality for that process throughout. So that's sort of the process up to the point where now punishment might have to be handled down, handed down. Okay. Once the punishment is handed down, we actually have a conflict with our HR professionals. Um, and that's probably beyond the scope of us to really get, get too much into here other than a really core value of HR is that discipline is between the employee and the employer and no one else. Right. So that anything that happens in terms of discipline should only go between the, um, the accused firefighter and the fire chief or HR or anyone, you know, that's, that's in that sort of need to know. Um, but anyone else should not know. Now, um, I, chief, I know, I think I met you when I was working for the NFPA, but you knew, you know, I worked after I left Providence, I worked for the NFPA for a couple of years. Yeah. The NFPA is cubicle world. Okay. And that HR philosophy works perfect in cubicle world. Yeah. It does not work in the fire service. Okay. It cannot work in the fire service because we have people who are aware of the misconduct. They see the misconduct. They see no consequences to the misconduct. And they'll say, Hey, you know what? If Joe can get away with it, why can't Kurt? Sure. And they'll now engage in the misconduct. And I, I think that, that there's a nuance there that HR has to understand that the fire service is a little bit different than cubicle world. And what works in cubicle world isn't necessarily going to work in the firehouse. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. So, you know, um, I, I, I guess the way to say that is, like you said, the, the conflict between that HR cubicle world and the firehouse kitchen table world it's right. it's just it's just a completely different environment yeah not well, let, me, uh, let me let me give you another yeah 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 let me give you another another metaphor that i like to use is the bell curve you know we know the standard bell curve we know what the standard bell curve represents okay and when a firefighter does something wrong and they're outside the bell curve Let's say we'll go back to 2004 when the first firefighter went to a car accident and took a picture with his cell phone and posted it to Facebook. Facebook was brand new. Yep. Okay. Um, we have one firefighter outside the bell curve posting a picture to Facebook. Okay. And the bell curve, the bell curve of firefighters wouldn't do that. But they look at that firefighter, they see the picture on Facebook, they or those of them who know what a Facebook is, <laughs> they, they're aware that it's been done, and they don't see any consequences to it. Yeah. And they say, huh, you know what, I'm going to do it too. So in the fire service, we have to be mindful that we not only have an accused firefighter who may have done something, we also have to be concerned about the bell curve. Because if the bell curve follows 
what they saw that firefighter do, they may repeat the same behavior. So I, I really think that HR folks who understand the fire service understand the need for us to have a different approach when it comes to confidentiality of, of discipline. Yeah. Yeah, that whole bell curve discussion could be an entire political podcast in and of itself. All right, Kurt, we've talked a little bit about process and, and communicating up and down the chain or not. Um, can you speak to the issue of consistency again? We, we mentioned it a little bit, but the issue of consistency and discipline and why it matters legally. Well, uh, firefighters by and large are government employees. And um, as a, as a result, they have the protections that are offered to everyone by the constitution, the the U S constitution also by their state constitution. So um, they have a right to due process. Um, and you know, th- there's some nuances there in different states, but generally they have a right to due process and, um, right to equal protection under the laws. They have a number, number of other statutory rights. Um, and when we're not consistent, it gives, it gives a guilty firefighter sort of a get out of jail free card because we haven't been yeah. consistent. Yeah. Um, so it, it's vitally important, much more so if you work in private industry, you work for UPS, you work for Coca-Cola, Home Depot. Um, yeah, they have to treat you somewhat you know, similarly and they have contracts with their unions and all that. But when it comes to government, um, there's going to be a host of um, problems that can arise when we're not consistent. And, and you know what, from a leadership and that's the legal that's a legal answer. Let's put that on the shelf for a minute. Let's just talk about leadership. How can a leader expect to have credibility with his or her folks if they're not treating people fairly? And to me, that's, that's a much more important consideration than the strict legal aspect of it. Right. Yeah. Okay. Um, you know, we talked bef- uh, before the last break, we, we talked about um, a little bit about Bill of Rights and uh, can you speak to the firefighters that are protected by union contracts? Because not everybody is, but many of them are protected by union contracts and firefighter bill of rights in various states and, and various other legal protections. Can you speak to the nuances of, of, of navigating those contracts and the bill of rights and um, all of those issues when you're doling out discipline? Yeah, I mean, certainly um, from the front office perspective, you've got to be mindful of the rights that are in the collective bargaining agreement because those ride over and above whatever other rights they have, either from the firefighter bill of rights or um, another reality that we have in public life is civil service systems. And Mm -hmm. I know not every municipality has a civil service system, but when you have civil service um, and, and actually civil service often in most jurisdictions, it predates collective bargaining. It was sort of a a system that was put in place to protect long-term employees from political, you know, the waves that happen when, you know, one party gets elected and the other party's leaving and there's house cleaning and and all that. So the civil service system was was put in place to protect the, uh, the permanent workforce. Um, and firefighters were the beneficiary of those. Then we had superimposed on that collective bargaining in, in many jurisdictions. Okay. So again, it's just another set of rules that we've got to make sure that we adhere to and follow um, whenever we've got to 
investigate and also administer punishment to an employee. Yeah. Yeah. No, and it, it certainly makes sense. It's uh, you, you got to follow all the rules, even if you're the chief. And um, when it comes to yeah. discipline, it, it's it's uh, probably the quintessential rule, if you will. So leading that into policy, um, how important is having a discipline policy uh, to help keep officers on track with discipline issues? Well, I, I think, you know, I, I think uh, let me let me draw a metaphor to our structure fire policy. You know that we 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 want to have a structure fire policy, and we want it to be the best possible. We want it to be well researched, but we don't want it to be thought of as so ironclad that we can't make some changes in it. When through experience we realize, hey, you know, this didn't work out. We need to maybe modify this part of the structure fire policy. It's the exact same thing with discipline. That we want to have a discipline policy, and you know, you, your point about the fact that chiefs change on a regular basis is even more important when it comes to this. Um, because you know, when the chief changes, the structure fire policy doesn't change. And you know what? The the chief can be out of town, the deputy chief or the assistant chief, your your five bugle can be out of town. Your four bugle can be out of town and maybe half of the three bugles can be out of town. The fire is still going to get go out. Right. Well, the same principle should apply when it comes to discipline. Um, but it's gotta be in the policy so that everyone knows with the understanding, it's gotta be well-researched. And then once we have it in place where we follow the policy, maybe we feel that someone should have been disciplined, but they end up, you know, there was a mistake made or whatever it may be. That's fine. We go back, we modify the policy, we update it so that we don't make that mistake again. And we just keep tinkering at it until we get it to where it needs to be. But absolutely, yeah. we need a we need a discipline policy. Yeah, and it needs to be strong. I, I like it needs to be well researched, uh, and I think you know it's not something that's just developed on a whim. Um, well, so, the the problem the problem when things are developed on a whim is when the chief doesn't like you. Yeah, they're going to do it one way. When the chief likes you, we're going to do something a little bit different. And so we want to take that favoritism. We want to take that bias out of the equation and we have a set way of handling discipline, whether we like you or we don't like you, you're going to get the same process. Yeah. And, you know, you wrote a article for us uh, on, on Lexapol um, that was about uh, similar, similarly situated members. Yeah. And you, you posed the question there, you posed the question, you said when administering discipline in the fire service, uh, must that discipline for two similarly situated employees for the same offense be the same when circumstances are similar in nature? Can you talk to that and and follow up on uh, that last question and this together? Yeah, well, uh, you know, in the classroom, things are really simple because we can just say Mr. A and Mrs. B are similarly situated, Okay. Maybe they are, maybe they're not, but there's an important factual question. You know, are they actually similarly situated? You know, Mr. A maybe has 10 years. um, Mrs. B maybe has 15 years. Okay. Maybe they have different disciplinary histories. Okay. Again, in a classroom, we can just say they're equal. Well, if they're truly equal, the punishment should be the same. Okay. It, It should come out to be the same. Um, but that's where all the nuances come in. You know, how many years 
have they been on? Is their disciplinary history the same? Okay. And then, you know, is the, is the infraction exactly the same? Um, you know, some two, two people come in late for, for work. Okay. You know, let's use the simplest one. And this is the one that by the way, never actually happens because the family nature of the fire service covers it up. But let's just say we have two firefighters that came in late to work. Okay. Um, well, um, one overslept and one got in an accident on the way to work. Do they both deserve the same punishment or is there a reason? And that's one of the things I don't like about the, um, the disciplinary matrix because the disciplinary matrix can really tie your hands yeah. in a situation like that. Um, so you, you want to have the ability to take into account all of the factors that may be uh, associated with a particular infraction. Yeah. Yeah. And I guess the matrix has got, uh, it's got um, certainly good points and, and bad points and gives me some food for thought as I continue working through this process and in negotiating our uh, our current labor agreement. So I appreciate that on my end, and I'm sure some of our listeners um, have the same appreciation. Anything else you'd like to cover in our discussion today, Kurt? Well, you know, discipline is such an important um, it's such an important aspect, and I, I just I feel uh, awful that. Um, I think so many firefighters just turn off at the idea of discipline and you know, it, it I understand it, it offends an important part of our culture. And I've been in the fire service. My grandfather was a firefighter. My dad was a firefighter. Um, I've been in fire service cultures as long as I can remember. Um, but we've got to realize, you know, we've got to, we've got to keep our own house clean. I had a, a, a captain that, that had said this uh, on a number of occasions uh, when I was a young firefighter. Uh, and he, he wasn't talking about housework, but he, he said, we've got to keep our own station clean because if we don't keep our own station clean, somebody's going to come in here and clean it for us. And we're probably going to not like the way that they clean it. Yeah. And I think that's what can happen when a fire department doesn't manage its discipline. Um, eventually somebody's going to come in. It might be the, city council, it might be the state legislature, um, but somebody's going to come in and fix that problem. So you either, you either keep your own house clean or somebody's going to come in and clean it for you. And you're probably not going to like the way they clean it. Yeah, absolutely. And that's a great way uh, to kind of wrap us up there. And I want to capture some takeaways from our discussion today with Kurt Verone on discipline in the fire service. And we started off with him talking about his favorite question and that was what is the purpose of discipline and he talked about uh, an analogy of the dog chasing the rabbit and uh, at the end of the day the discussion ended with we don't always need to catch the rabbit or kill the rabbit we just need to get the rabbit to stop eating the lettuce out of my garden you know when you talk about discipline it's it's a whole lot of that we just need to stop the rabbit from eating the lettuce then he talked about the top three uh, discipline issues that are in his database that he's been collecting now for for several years, which 